This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Formed in ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. I have a special show today for you guys, and this is going to be for more people than usual. We're going to spread this out, and we're going to talk about the job market today. We're going to talk about some new positionings, but again, I'm not going to be doing all the talking. I got experts on board today, and we're really going to break a few things down. And this is going to be titled, Ditching Your 9 to 5, Overnight and Evening Clinical Pharmacy Positions. And I have wonderful people here that's going to introduce themselves. So, Nick, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hey, yeah, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Nick Jackowenko. I am uh, currently a clinical pharmacist over at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, originally, I'm from uh, Connecticut, and I did my pharmacy school at MCPHS University in Boston. And then I did my PGY-1 at Houston Methodist down in Houston, Texas. And then I did my PGY-2 in critical care over um, at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona. Perfect. And Diane, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, um, thanks again for having us. My name is Diane Drusian. I'm actually a current overnight ICU clinical pharmacy specialist at Houston Methodist Hospital. I, my family is originally from Romania. However, I grew up mainly in the Houston area and attended the University of Houston for my pharmacy training. And then I loved Houston so much, I stayed for residency and did both my PGY-1 and my PGY-2 in critical care at Houston Methodist. Just like, uh, Houston is just like a, a big thing for you, I see. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go ahead and uh, get this episode because there's a lot of key talking points that we want to get into. And I think it's going to be really valuable for the audience. So I want to really get into it. Why this topic is important. Like what? why, why should we even talk about this? Because many people may say, you know, clinical pharmacy goes home at three o'clock. So, you know, why should we talk about this, Nick? Yeah, for sure. And th- I think that's a really good question to just start this whole thing. Um, and I really think that, uh, you know, the context of why these uh, sort of um, non-traditional pharmacy positions are really important is because the job market for pharmacies is changing a lot, especially over the past decade, you know, let alone the past 50 years, like how far our profession has become. You know, we're moving from more of those dispensing roles to those actual bedside uh, clinical roles where we're actually with physicians helping make treatment decisions. And um, still to this day, a lot of uh, hospitals actually don't have clinical pharmacy services 24 hours a day or overnight at all. It's kind of limited to just having those pharmacists in the uh, central pharmacy kind of doing orders and just handling everything. So they don't necessarily always have the bandwidth to kind of go to the bedside with clinicians um, and try to help, uh, you know, make those decisions before orders actually get put in. And if you actually look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which I, I'll be honest, I never really look at, but I was kind of curious just to see the trajectory of our profession. They actually predict a 2% decline over the next 10 years. And I think that's probably true when you look at the pharmacy profession as a whole. But I do think there are more uh, opportunities opening up, opening up in the hospital sector. And specifically thinking about critical care in the emergency department, um, you know, compared to other specialties, these patients are more dynamic. Uh, they have a lot of changes that can occur in just a few hours. And this is a really 
prime time to uh, make sure that we're maintaining that continuity of care for these patients. And like I said, it's really uh, beneficial if we can get some of these interventions in early on, like when they get admitted overnight, rather than having to wait for uh, rounds the next day. And we can really help um, offset some of those things when there's someone present overnight. Absolutely. And, and I just look at all of this and I'm thinking to myself, man, the growth of the pharmacy schools, the, the, the I would say the lack of the growth with the profession with that when it comes to jobs. And it's, you really have to either adapt or die. And it seems that's what we're having to do right now. But I think a- adapting is going to be safer for our patients. It's going to be the best thing for our team because I think anyone who works with, you know, I like to say we're like a grocery store. You can say you don't you, you don't need us, but it's sure as heck a lot easier to eat every night when we're there. So <laughs> yeah. a, a little easier yeah. to, to have us around when it comes to just the pharmacotherapy recommendations and just ensuring that we take what's in the provider's brain and put it into the patient's vein. So that's really the the thing I like to, to discuss. And uh, we can really talk about this now. And Diane, can we just move forward? What is the current state again? I've seen a few jobs when I was coming out. Uh, it's something that you know a little bit more intimately than I do. What is the current state right now of clinical pharmacy overnight and evening coverage? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. I think one of the biggest things that, you know, as a resident, honestly, even coming out of pharmacy school that really comes up is really that overall job saturation, like Nick talked about, the overall job statistics in general for pharmacists as a whole um, are not really favorable. And then as you start to get more and more specialized, whether that's critical care, emergency medicine, or really any specialty, the overall number of jobs continues to go down as you get more specialized. Um, and so I think that this is really where a lot of institutions are trying to expand pharmacy services overall, while they may have a really strong kind of day shift crew that covers a broad, you know, different amount of specialties. Um, really evening and overnight hours is when you're kind of working with bare bones teams and a lot of institutions are trying to kind of expand their services there. Um, like Nick mentioned, historically, a lot of the evening overnight pharmacists were kind of a quote unquote jack of all trades doing order verification, but they really didn't have that dedicated time to be able to be at the bedside triaging issues, making kind of higher level clinical decisions just because they had so much on their plate. And so this is really where kind of a lot of hospitals are expanding and having these newer positions that are focused more on the bedside aspect of care. So it's really more of um, kind of a transition into more of a true specialist role as opposed to kind of that hybrid of order verification, but also answering clinical questions overnight. And I think at least for me in my experience coming out of PGY2 last year, the majority of new positions across the U.S., specifically within ICU and emergency medicine, were mainly evening and overnight jobs. So again, I think this is really where a lot of the hospitals are trying to expand and build upon their services. Absolutely. And this is something that when when everyone's making jokes right now about the Joint Commission and JCO and their and their social media posts. But I think one of the things that usually when they come to the ED, one of the recommendations is that they want 24-hour coverage. You know, they want these coverage in these areas with, you know, sicker patients. And I think these unique, whether it's going to be just uh solely IC or solely ED even in overnight positions, it's something that I think everybody recognized that we should be doing. It's just getting uh, everyone into, I call them the suits, you know, you can call them the C-suite, wherever you want to, <laughs> to really buy into that. And I'm, I feel a little better about it. And I think now versus 10, you know, 15 years ago, they're buying in a little bit more when it comes to getting us on board. But I think a lot of people are like a little nervous, you know, they don't know what to expect. They don't know how to, like, okay, when they interview for these jobs, what to expect. So like, what is the current role like? And like, what responsibilities do you have? 
Yeah, um, that is definitely something that even me going into interviewing for a lot of these jobs, I was kind of thinking about, you know, and asking questions about what exactly are the roles and kind of purpose of each particular role. Um, and I think a lot of that is also going to be institution dependent. I would say global overarching kind of tasks that most of these positions entail are things like following up on farmer co-kinetics drug levels, um, attending code blues, stroke responses, rapid sequence intubations, whatever kind of cocktail your institution has, um, as well as kind of doing those higher level kind of narrow therapeutic index um, recommendations. So things like anticoagulation, antimicrobial stewardship. I think a lot of um, the positions have kind of a different mix between ICU coverage versus easy coverage versus kind of a mixed option. Um, and so every institution is a little bit different in terms of what that split will look like. But I think that, you know, kind of other things that I've personally done in my current role is serving as a drug expert for providers. So, you know, we may be in ICU, but we get all sorts of patients that are on all sorts of, you know, maybe chemotherapy meds or maybe psych meds that certain critical care ED providers are not as familiar with. So serving as that drug expert for that. Um, I think one of the areas that I'm personally expanding in um, kind of these days with higher nursing turnover is being that perpetual educator. Yeah. Obviously with the pandemic, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of, you know, travel nurses, contract nurses. We frequently have kind of new grad students, residents and things like that in the unit. And so serving as that educator for, hey, this is how we do things. Hey, this is what the literature shows um, and being that resource for them as well. And then kind of finally, just being an extra pair of hands within the unit. So I've helped with medication delivery, preparation if necessary, mixing things like PPA, case center at bedside if needed, priming lines, troubleshooting Pixis machines, and just being able to be that extra set of hands when we know that overnight or evening hours, we tend to have less staff overall. Absolutely. And I think it's pretty cool because I was fortunate to do one call in a variety, like a variety of institutions and residency, and you notice that things change very quickly uh, after like the traditional day shift. And you can even tell, again, especially in ED and IC, the personality of the nursing staff is completely different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the term is, oh, that's a day shift problem, you know, that's a night shift problem. And I think it's very different. And our role and what they expect us to do is so different because they're just used to not having as much. So when you're getting these, these services started for the first time, it's pretty intriguing that you have to like build their trust first because they're not used to you doing anything other than making a recommendation. So you being on hands-on has been something that I found to be pretty interesting, but there's a lot of differences that occur from like the nursing staff and uh, in between ED and ICU, but they can you kind of walk me down how this is different from like the traditional positions and really help the residents that's out there right now and people who are transitioning jobs understand the difference between the two. Yeah, for sure. So I think really when you think about it, this position, you know, a position like this, you would ideally be covering uh, both ED and ICU services. So that's kind of already a difference in and of itself. And usually when you think about, you know, a regular ICU or a regular ED shift, a lot of the actual stuff you do is really not so much different with the exception that, you know, when you're on a, a normal IC rotation or you're, you know, working as a daytime pharmacist, you know, it's, it's very structured, you know, for the most part, I'm sure, you know, there can be wrenches that are thrown into your day for sure. Um, but it's very structured. You have people around, you know, it's like a, a basically a layered sort of model. Everything's kind of in place. Once everybody goes home, I mean, it's a totally different story. And like Diane was saying, you know, a lot of the things you can do are, 
things like, you know, drug level consults, you know, different kinetic things, but really it is what you make of it. You can be as active as you want. And when I was doing these types of shifts, that's really what I was doing. I was like a honey badger, just like sneaking out for like, you know, really sick patients, like finding things to do and ways to be helpful. So it's usually less about, you know, doing all that rounding and managing, you know, chronic illnesses, making sure people are on all their, you know, guideline directed medical therapy and all that, and more about just putting out fires and dealing with new admissions. And I remember during when COVID really just started is when I first started doing these shifts, we were just getting the sickest transfers from anywhere. And um, sometimes we'd just be getting patients where you just know nothing. So it really forces you to go beyond what you might normally do during the day and really just do like professional level chart stocking, calling the other hospital, figuring out what drugs they've been given. Um, so like I said, it's kind of like you could be as, as much of a detective as you want and do as much as you want. Um, and typically when you think about it, a lot of these ED and ICU admissions or transfers tend to be very high, high acuity, um, because they're usually getting transferred from more emergent issues. You know, you could have emergent ECMO cannulations and, um, you know, just any, anything really. So I think the, the structure in and of itself is different. And then basically your, uh, level of being hands-on changes as well. And I think that can really uh, build trust between the nursing staff and the, the providers overnight because you'll be so present. Yeah, I think that's the cool part. It's like you're the, you are a clinical pharmacy. <laughs> like it's usually, yep. uh, I think we're just now getting started at this. It's usually, you know, you have a few seven on seven on people who are doing it. You are the clinical pharmacy. So all questions, if you have an on-call program at your institution, you may have a resident there, but even then you have, you're the person that like, you're the top of the food chain when it comes to any drug question. So I think it's pretty yeah. unique. And I, for yeah. me, when I was on call, it, I personally, from a professional standpoint, growth it really helped me identify problems that I didn't know existed. <laughs> and as exactly. you mentioned, being an investigator, and that's all you really you put up fires all night. And it's pretty cool to, to learn all the different stuff. So after, you know, a while of being in, into this, it becomes where you can spot things before they even come. Like one of the things that you mentioned through high acuity transfers, <clears throat> I transfer all drips to mine. Uh, it's, it's been, it's like, yeah, what, what, it's the same stuff. It's like, no, because there may be one time that the concentrations are different and the dosing oh, yeah. may be different because when you do weight-based epi or you do just this, the standard epi, yep. that, that one thing <clears throat> can be an issue. So I, I change mm-hmm. all drips when, when I, when I get there, I ask what, what they're on. So I traditionally have them made and ready to go before the patient gets there. But it's something yeah. as simple as that being done consistently can save yourself so many, you know, drug information questions or to save the patient from getting the wrong dose. Because I, I yesterday, provider said, I want to start at one. Well, you mean <laughs> one microcule per minute All right. <laughs> for you. Nursing staff was like, oh, you want to start at one mic a minute? That's fine. Patient hypotensive. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's actually really funny that you, you mentioned like all the, you know, changing the drips over. And I remember like very vividly this one night where, um, you know, we're getting this transfer to, uh, you know, our cardiac 
uh, ICU. And we got a very poor handoff from, you know, this hospital. And this lady comes in and they kind of just briefly mention at the end, like, oh, yeah, we started her on IVE proprostanol. And we we're like, uh, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> so I'm like getting ready to be like, you know, going to see what the concentration is, what's the rate, like what, what weight did they use, which I had to call them and figure out like what they use. And then she comes in, it's made in like a syringe. And I'll never forget, I looked at like the pump and it was being run as like a hydromorphone drip in order to get the correct like mls per hour and i was like oh my god like so we just had to call the hospital we had to like call the pulmonologist overnight and be like hey like this is what's going on so yeah i you know i appreciate you you mentioned that because i think that's super important is to really like take ownership of that part of the patient's care because it could be so detrimental if something like that especially gets missed absolutely it it, it can just get really bad but but we talk about some of the the challenges within this and i think we have to be remiss you know to not discuss okay well there's some cool some pretty cool things you can do depending on your personality type but then kind of walk me through the biggest challenges to work in these overnight positions yeah um i think that you know like you said there's a lot of pros and a lot of fun things that you can do overnight and obviously anyone that's kind of pursuing these types of jobs usually tends to be of that personality that enjoys putting out fires, but there's definitely a couple of downsides and, you know, a couple of challenges working within one of these jobs. I think one of the biggest things that comes up a lot is really just managing whatever workload you have and being able to triage issues. Like you mentioned earlier, there's usually one, maybe two clinicians total in-house overnight. So all of the burden falls on that one person to manage. So whether that's, you know, three simultaneous codes going on or, you know, two simultaneous codes and one new admission, um, you know, sometimes that can often be a challenge. I know for me recently, I had um, a night where we're trying to emergently cannulate one patient on ECMO for COVID. And then at the same time, we're getting this DKA super hypotensive, super acidotic patient that needed emergent intubation and our intensivist and myself are just kind of running around like a chicken with our head cut off (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, which one is the sickest patient, which one's going to deteriorate first. And so when you're managing all the patients across multiple units, that can sometimes be a challenge. I think another thing that um, I personally, I feel like maybe kind of didn't anticipate as much would be a challenge is really kind of switching your schedule back and forth. A lot of these jobs do tend to be seven on, seven off, which kind of helps with that transition going from kind of a day shift personal life to a night shift work life, but not every position is like that. So I think it's important for anyone that's applying for these positions or, you know, kind of looking at these jobs to ask that or kind of keep that in mind is what is the schedule going to be like? And one of the other challenges that comes with that is kind of being able to coordinate social plans outside of, you know, your job. Most of my friends have typical Monday through Friday, nine to five jobs. And so, you know, I only have one Friday off every other week where, you know, maybe we'll be able to go out and do something. So that is also something that, you know, has kind of come up and something to keep in mind. Um, I think overall, there's limited resources overnight. So there's certain consultant services that may or may not be in-house. So services like infectious disease, hematology, you may not be able to actually get someone to respond to a page or actually come see the patient. So essentially as the only clinical pharmacist, you become that consultant service. There's plenty of times where I become the ID physician and I'm approving (laughs) restricting antimicrobials and doing all sorts of crazy things because there's really nobody else. Um, And then you're also working with health staff with various levels of training, usually like academic medical centers, you're working with residents, 
sellers, you know, you might have interns leading your code blue. So, you know, kind of being able to adapt to all those different levels of training sometimes may be um, a challenge. And then one other thing is also kind of having limited access to certain family members. Mm -hmm. If we're trying to do med recs or trying to figure out, is this patient on like the seizure med at home or, you know, what's their dose of epixaban at home? Trying to get that information either from a family member, from an outpatient pharmacy may just be impossible or may have logistical issues just given the time of the day. And then obviously you have little to no downtime just based on the overall acuity of the patients that you're dealing with because you're mainly putting out fires. So you may have one night where you have seven codes and you have absolutely no time to even, you know, eat anything, drink anything. And then you have other nights where you maybe have a little bit more downtime. But I think that, you know, this overall kind of high acuity type of job tends to put people at higher risk of burnout, exhaustion, feeling, you know, kind of worn out from dealing with this all day, every day. And then it also becomes a challenge with being able to be involved in certain initiatives. So people that are interested in precepting and serving on committees and doing research, obviously due to logistical challenges, it's hard to take residents overnight, or it's hard to take students, it's hard to attend committee meetings during the day when you're supposed to be sleeping. Um, so those are kind of, you know, some of the global challenges that I think a lot of us in these positions tend to face. But it also opens up avenues for us to kind of come up with creative solutions to kind of circumvent some of these things so we still have that job satisfaction. Absolutely. I think you just you, you really nailed it when it comes to just the challenges, because I think uh, traditional ED jobs were really kind of favoring this. We, we understand a lot of the afternoonish getting closer to overnight components because usually we'll go pass off to you guys. And it's, it's just challenging to have everyone understand this is what we're doing all night. Because it's usually, what are you doing? You know, it's overnight. Nothing's happening. <laughs> the patients are sleeping. <laughs> they, don't, they don't code overnight. You know, that's bad. They don't code out of business. <laughs> it, it is challenging to have someone, you know, experience that. You, know, you have to do it to understand. I think most people who are listening right now, if you've done an overnight shift, if you, if you currently work overnight, no matter what it is, you know, we, we're talking clinical pharmacy, but I think our, our colleagues that have been the term staff pharmacist or just clinical pharmacists, who work in the, the main hub in, in a decentralized or centralized model, they've been doing this for years. And it, it is a challenge to take care of, depending on how large a hospital is, you're responsible for all those patients. You don't have just a unit. You don't have just, you know, 20 patients, you know, it's, it's hundreds of ICU beds. It's hundreds of people who are in the ED. You know, my last shift back in Atlanta, I had 200 some patients in the ED. It is like I'm responsible yep. for all their orders. I'm responsible for, going for every trauma. It's like you, you can have a day where you have, you know, as you mentioned, 10 codes. You can have 15 intubation. You can have, you know, 15 level one traumas come in in a couple hours. So trying to take care of all those responsibilities by yourself and everyone's looking to you to be there. Like they were called, they called me overhead <laughs> one time. <laughs> And I was like, this oh, is no not pharmacy. <laughs> Jimmy, come to room seven now. <laughs> so I'm flattered, but at the same time, it's like you're running to put out fire to fire. But I'm, I'm fortunate that I really enjoy that. And I think that kind of leads us into like the next part is talking about who's the ideal candidate for this role and why. Like, who would want to do this, right? <laughs> I think you nailed it when you said that, you know, it's usually people who like this high stress, who like putting out fires, who enjoy these, you know, really acute situations, but tend to do really well 
these roles because they find so much job satisfaction, so much fulfillment. I know both Nick and I as PGY1s really enjoyed kind of these high acuity situations and we would kind of be known for going to codes or, you know, certain events outside of rotation hours just when we were working mm-hmm. on projects. Um, and so I think that people who like that environment and really thrive with thinking on their feet, having those critical thinking skills are um, really great candidates for these jobs. I think other certain characteristics that obviously we're looking for in future pharmacists in this role are things like being able to multitask. As you said, there's 8 million things going on. You're out of code, you're getting phone calls, you're you know, trying to manage eight different patients across three different units. And so being able to multitask and again, be able to triage what's the most important issue, what needs my attention now um, is really important. And I think honestly, these roles are a really good kind of niche area specifically for newer graduates that are fresh out of residency because you have all of the different areas of clinical practice fresh on your mind. Um, you know, having just finished PGY2, you have neuro topics on, fresh on your mind, you have cardiac topics fresh on your mind, medical ICU, surgical ICU, transplant, versus someone who's maybe been in a particular kind of niche area for 10 years, they may be a little bit out of the loop in terms of, you know, what, what are the latest anticoagulation therapies for patients on mechanical circulatory support devices, or kind of vice versa, they may not know, you know, what's the best hyperosmolar therapy for patients that are presenting with cerebral edema. And so having these newly graduated residents that have just gone through everything, have just taken boards and are really familiar with all these different topics are really the ones that tend to thrive. Absolutely. I, I think you just, you know, I think it, it, the cool thing is your co-residents, they tell you, you know, you're that person who just likes to be there. I remember my PGY1, um, someone said like, Jimmy, you are smiling during the code. And the patient made it, but I, I think it, it just talks about the personality where you're there and you're just happy that you like, okay, I'm now over the part of being like terrified out of my mind and I want to get the job done and I enjoy the teamwork. I enjoy that component. I enjoy, you know, usually you're the own, you're the face of pharmacy and I, I enjoy that. I, I enjoy, you know, when I, when I come to a code, they say, oh, okay, Jimmy's here. You know, the pharmacist is here. It is pretty cool that like you you can become that person and you learn once you look back for your residency training, it's like, oh yeah, I was kind of always like this. <laughs> you know, this is something that I've always enjoyed. I've always multitasked. And people ask me, like, what's the one thing that helps you like in these critical situations? And I said, I played football for 15 years. They're like, what? And I was like, I spent half of my career running backwards. adjusting to what's happening in front of me and making a split decision and going and just throwing myself at something. That's all I'm doing now within pharmacy. It's just a little different. You're running around, not knowing what's going on and just putting out fires. So I think it's pretty cool that, you know, you mentioned, so anyone out there who, you know, I think if you can just handle the high stress situation, you don't have to smile and close like the weirdo Jimmy, but you can can just be able to (laughs) handle it and just know, okay, I hand, I teach my residents, I say, hand the epi over and step back and think. You have two minutes. And they're like, what? You're, you're thinking? I said, I hand the epi, <clears throat> get the next one ready, and I go stand beside the provider. And I look at the patient with them and I say, what do you think? They're like, how do you do that? It's like, you just have to just train yourself to just do a simple thing and then you can offload stuff and it's going to work really, really well. So I think this really helps us from like a personality standpoint. So I know that most people listen to this podcast. If you listen to something called Farm So Hard, <laughs> you're, 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 probably, you're probably one of those people. So uh, you're definitely, you're, you're suited for, for the job so far. But I think we talked about some of the, 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 the roles and the things that matters to us. 
But I think I want to transition now into how do you justify this? Because that is that's where it really counts. You know, we would love to have two, three, four people overnight. Right. We would love that. So how do you justify expanding clinical service to these overnight evening positions? Like, Nick, what, what have you found? Yeah, I think this is a really key step into like getting these types of things off the ground, right? Because in theory, this this all sounds awesome. And like, even if you ask physicians around your hospital, like, what would you guys think of having us around all the time? They would look at you and be like, oh my God, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, of course, it's a no brainer. But um, like a a frame of mind that I was thinking during my PGY2 when me and uh, my co-resident were were piloting these shifts um, in order to expand coverage at our site. Um, you know, one of our preceptors framed it in such a good way as thinking about it, you know, as the devil's advocate, like, okay, you know, these physicians, they want us here. Do they want us enough to take money from their own budget to pay for it? Like, who's going to fund this, right? And that's a really important consideration to have. And when you think about it in that way, you got to think, okay, what are the ways I can sell this to uh, the other pharmacists in the department? Because it's also important to make sure that, you know, they're on board and everybody like understands what these positions are going to do. How can I sell it to physicians? And then how can I sell it to the, you know, the C-suite, like Jimmy mentioned earlier in in management. So I think the first step in order to get these things off the ground running is to pilot these hours, you know, sit down with some of the ED pharmacists, ICU pharmacists, you know, describe like your goals and, and what this may look like at your institution, because, you know, the hours that, you may provide coverage, uh, you know, in, in Tucson, Arizona, where I was, or different than in, in Houston when, when Diane and I were both there. So you have to figure out like what, what the hours are, what it's going to look like. And then this really helps gauge if this is feasible and you can work out some of those big kinks in the beginning. And uh, one of the ways you could go about this is to reach out to one of the ED or ICU pharmacists and they can try and pilot these hours or if you are a resident and you want to, you know, just punish yourself some more, you could say, for example, in your second ED rotation, uh, you know, in the second half of the year, or like maybe one of your later IC rotations, you can make these hours a part of your, your learning experience and say, hey, you know, I'd be willing to actually put in half of my four week rotation hours, you know, trying these, trying these shifts out. Um, so there's a couple different ways you could go about doing it that way. And then another thing I would do uh, kind of before actually starting the shifts is to reach out to physicians first by word of mouth, you know, kind of gauge the interest. And I would ask attendings, fellows and residents, you know, you, you want like everybody's perspective and the mid-levels. So you can't forget our mid-levels. So you, you just need to like get everybody's buy-in. And then once you kind of gauge the interest, send them a survey with questions that you think are pertinent uh, to justifying starting these hours and piloting these record their responses, you know, have that as part of the package when you present everything later to management. And then um, the second step is to actually track everything that you're doing, every intervention that you're doing and come up with a a categorization for it. Um, You know, when you read studies that look at the, the financial impact of having a pharmacist in the ICU or the ED, you know, it's really important that we're trying to tie together interventions and make it consistent across different studies that are already out there. Cause you want, you want to be able to, to have the, these sort of things be transferable to, to different institutions. Right. So that's kind of like what me and my co did was that we just created a red cap form and we figured out how we'd want to track 
um, each intervention we did and like what category that would fall under. And um, basically whenever you do something before your shift ends, just log it, log it in there, you know, the time, date, everything type of intervention. Um, and I think that can actually show quantitatively what you're doing overnight, right? Um, you know, and like like we've been talking about, I, I will have to put a plug in and say that there will be some nights where it's not always as busy as you might want it. You know, it's not always going to be the Grey's Anatomy doing compressions, <laughs> like coming out of the elevator, you know. Um, and I really think that uh, we should keep that in mind. You know, if, if someone's listening and they want to try and do this, that on those nights that um, maybe there's not as much new admits coming in, that it's important that you're you know, taking the time to, to find the problems essentially. Um, and if you can find some more things to do, just log it down. And if not, you can actually talk to the providers, provide some informal education, which I know a lot of us may miss out on those overnight hours. So you can really keep yourself busy and log um, some of those other things as well, if you wanted to. And then plus or minus, if you were able to attach a monetary benefit for these interventions that you're doing, um, it could also strengthen the argument uh, it could be tricky though, and you know, I'm, I don't think I have the the prowess to do these sort of analyses. But if you have someone that would be on board and able to do that, um, I think that would probably help. Um, again, like I said, when you're looking at things, you know, who would pay for this position? Well, you can try to tie a monetary benefit to everything that you're doing overnight and seeing how much, um, you know, cost avoidance uh, that you're actually generating, and that could also just help uh, strengthen, you know, the approval of, of full time positions. Um, because you got to remember, it's not usually one pharmacist they're hiring. It's at least two, you know, sometimes three. So you really need to kind of have everyone buy in, physicians, other pharmacists, management. Um, and then you also just need to be aware of, of other staffing issues and, and the budgetary limitations. So that's that's kind of what um, I, I did during PGY2 uh, with my co-resident is that we piloted these hours, both of us. We tracked all our interventions, sent a survey to the physicians. Every, it was like overwhelmingly positive feedback pretty much um and we had a lot of respondents there was like 70 physicians got back to us um and i think between each of us even over like a week and a half or two week period you know each like we were like individually doing like 200 interventions throughout that whole period so we had a lot of um data points to show and then you know after i graduated from residency i think a couple months later they they reached out to us saying that they, they approved two, two FTEs for those uh, positions that we helped pilot. So it is possible. And I think that it serves a lot of unique opportunities, not only for currently practicing pharmacists that want to expand their clinical coverage and do these hours, but residents too that are wanting to also play a part. It's, it's totally possible. Um, it just, like I said, it takes planning, uh, communication, and just, just thinking about all those different things. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are, are, are doing this right now where they're piling these projects. And what I think happened, I think COVID got everyone behind for a second. So I think now you're starting to see a lot more of these positions becoming available because we're finally able to have conversations more so. Or we're getting used to having conversations about COVID over here and the rest of the hospital over <laughs> here. So I think everyone's getting very used to uh, not delaying everything from COVID. And, and now we said we can help out with COVID too, because these patients mm -hmm. are hanging out in my ER all night. <laughs> I'm tired of them. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. But it's just, you mentioned some, some points that we, we really don't want to gloss over is making sure you have them buy in from all the key stakeholders, you know, making sure everyone's <laughs> on board because 
I, I hate to, to mention it this way, but sometimes a, a recommendation from a physician is a lot better, you know, than a lot of the interventions that we try. It's just one of those unwritten things that happens in pharmacy. If I have the head of pulmonary critical care call the director of pharmacy and say, I need a pharmacist in, in, in my, my ICU overnight by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's hard to say no. Yeah. <laughs> you just find the money for that some kind of way. Yeah. So I think getting a buy-in is gonna be great. And I'm I'm so fortunate at MUSC that my, my staff and you know my chair and my director, they're like, whatever we have to do, whoever we have to talk to, whatever we have to say, in whatever manner we have to say it, get us more pharmacists. <laughs> so, you know, having that type of buy-in really is gonna be key. And I think everyone should work on that. Because you, you want to change the face of pharmacy. And I, I joke a lot about this term, the Lexi pharmacist, where, you know, you don't want to have, have that person where they do nothing but just call and aggravate the physician staff. And I, and I get why, because, again, we mentioned all the challenges of this. But I think having people there who can, you know, be seated in those positions to be able to look at patients with the team. You, you know, now you remember you're we're running around with the attending. So I think having someone there to understand the needs right now versus you know, the, the dose of fentanyl 50 may be too high. Can we start off, can we start off with 25 because Lexicom said so or because Micromedic said so? You know, I think having us in these positions help display what we can do a lot better. And I think from a pharmacy mm-hmm. standpoint, it's hard to make recommendations when you're not physically there. So I think this is going to be something that overall we just build with our physician colleagues and our nursing colleagues. Because again, I think everyone now knows who's working bedside. If the nursing staff don't like you, you're going to have a rough road. Oh, you're going to have a, you're going to have a tough, tough road if they don't buy in. No. You, you, see, I always tell people, get, the, get the, the person who's like the meanest nurse and like satisfy them. Because if you win them over, then everyone <laughs> over. I, I was just hone in on her. Just go find her and be like, all right, this is it. Here I we understand. go. Kim Jones, when I was in, in Augusta, and she was just like, you know, she was just <laughs> tough. And we had a few cases together and she was like, Okay, I like you now. And the rest of my time was, was better. So shout out to Kevin Jones out in Augusta. <laughs> All right. So based off everything we, we've talked about, uh, the current pharmacy model, and you know, I, I have my own opinions, but do you think modifications need to be made to ensure that pharmacy continues to expand? Like, yeah, let me know what you think, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. So I think providers are, you know, almost wanting a clinical pharmacist, like you, like you said. Uh, to be actually present, especially after they've experienced it, you know, um, like, especially during code situations, like you had alluded to, like when you actually are like stepping back, like talking to the the provider in that acute situation, which, which sometimes like Diane mentioned, it could be an intern, you know, it could be like a first, second year resident. Like, I think they really appreciate that because our perspective is, is uh, it's so different and it's one that they may not be able to, to think about in the same way. So like, we're just like an extra set of eyes, right? Um, and if you, you know, I, I think if you, um, you, you think about like the, like, uh, pharmacy model now, um, we kind of have to like revisit that staff versus clinical pharmacist role. Right. So like I mentioned, um, I think these positions right now, and you know, they're still out there is where you're, you're doing the order verification. Right. And then there's another pharmacist that's all just on the floor, which is not too atypical from what we do in the day time. So I think we can kind of draw on what we're doing today and just kind of, you know, apply that to the, to the nighttime setting. Um, and 
like previously, you know, those overnight central pharmacists um, would sometimes also handle the, the PK levels, you know, the anticoagulation monitoring, um, which still sometimes they do until the day shift came in. So now this would be taken away if the clinical overnight pharmacists are in-house all the time, because like I said, that's kind of what we'd be, we'd be focusing on more. Um, so that may also need to kind of change if current hospitals are having their central pharmacists overnight do everything, which they'd probably be grateful for honestly having help with because they're just so inundated with the nonstop flood of orders, right? Like, and then in my experience, you know, I think it's always been a great like team effort, you know, when working with the overnight uh, central pharmacist and they can pen things for you that look weird or, you know, Hey, they just ordered this case centra. Can you look at this? Mm -hmm. Like, it's so, it's so great. And I think they would love that like shift and um, not turfing the responsibility to another pharmacist, but maybe sharing the responsibility is a better yeah. way to put it. Um, and I really can't underestimate like the, the need for those central pharmacists doing what they do and the technicians, um, I, you know, they're the backbone of the operations. And I think without that, I mean, nothing would get done, right? Yeah. Like what, what good is a clinical pharmacist, you know, doing all these great things and they're like, oh yeah, could you put that in? And you're like, uh, how do I order this? And then you just <laughs> order it wrong and yeah, right. Like, um, so I definitely think that yes, there could be a separation between the overnight clinical and overnight central pharmacist, but really like understanding each other's role is what makes it um, harmonized, like, and just be so much better for the patient at the end of the day. Um, and I also think that we need to keep in mind, like I said, pharmacy jobs are kind of on the decline. So we, we need that shift towards finding more clinical or consulting based roles uh, to keep ourselves relevant and really keep our expertise in demand while there's more automation and technology that's um, continuing to be made that can really phase out some of those operational jobs, such as those overnight, um, you know, kind of jack of all trades jobs now. Um, so I think that are, those are like some big points to just keep in mind about, you know, the current pharmacy model and really just finding another way to advocate for our profession to use our clinical knowledge. And I think this is a, a, a perfect area to do that. That just hasn't really gotten enough love from my, you know, from my standpoint. Absolutely. And we mentioned, you know, all these things and in a perfect world, I think all of us, every single one of us wants 24 hour clinical pharmacy coverage. But the, the real question is, do you think it's, it's a realistic expectation? Because I think we can do it at bigger shops, of course, but realistically, do you think most of the large academic medical centers can get 24-hour coverage in the next 10 years? I, I really think that there we're already seeing a push towards more uh, hospitals having 24-hour coverage. Like, if you just search for jobs right now, you'll literally find, like, these types of jobs anywhere in the country. So if you're not geographically being restricted, I mean, there are a ton of opportunities and then you can actually look at other organizations and see what they're saying at their consensus statements, right? And I actually found one from the American College of Emergency Physicians, and I believe it was fairly recent within the past couple of years, um, give or take. And they're basically quoted as saying in one of their, their bullet points that, um, you know, we believe that institutions should work towards a goal of a 24-7 ED pharmacist coverage, right? Like they're, they're saying like, okay, this is what we want. And they're saying ED, but really, I mean, the ICU would like wants it too. And I think, I think those, that's not like a mutually exclusive, you know, yeah. role. Um, and, you know, I think I, in the ICU, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, and this role is continuing to expand. I mean, you have 
you know, top-notch pharmacists like Diane doing these things, right? And I, I really think that, um, like I said, it's becoming this role where it's, I think we're going to move to a point where we will have ICU and EDR 24-hour coverage. Um, and yeah, I don't know, Diane, do you have anything else to add, like just from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit a lot of the kind of big points with that. I think um, kind of thinking about like ICU-specific things as hospitals are growing the number of beds themselves, they're also hiring more and more providers. And there is obviously a shift at, a lot, at many of the large academic medical centers to have kind of mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, residents kind of doing the bulk of the patient care overnight with maybe one intensivist covering a unit or maybe multiple units. And so you kind of have, you know, that kind of level of provider that you're working with. And as those providers are, you know, still in training, or maybe they're kind of newer, you definitely need that kind of expert there that's able to help and support them with their pharmacological needs. And so I think that that's really where a lot of the hospitals are trying to push for expansion within the ICU um, kind of realm is being able to deal with those kind of situations. So like, for example, at my institution, most of our ICUs have kind of a mid-level provider or a resident level provider that's covering patients. And then they have like a supervising intensivist, but that intensivist covers anywhere from two to three students. And so obviously that level of provider is not able to be at bedside for every single clinical decision that's made. And so that's where really my role kind of comes in is being able to educate those newer nurse practitioners, the ones that maybe don't have as much ICU experience, or maybe ones that are kind of shifting from like a neural ICU to a cardiac ICU and being able to help kind of expand their drug knowledge, as well as be able to assist with all of those clinical decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're just hitting all the key points. And this is probably going to be like one of my favorite episodes because solely because we're, we're able to talk about all the aspects of this. And the, one of the last things I want to talk about, because we're pharmacists and, you know, you got to show me the data. Is there any literature out there to support the expansion of clinical services uh, to these non-traditional hours like, or just from a cost avoidance standpoint? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good point too. And that's yeah, I love how you mentioned like as pharmacists, we're like, okay, like you know, show me your search strategy. Like, did you look at Pub PubMed and you know Ovid and all this stuff, right? And you know, when we tried to do that, you know, I know Dalian and I, being our our studious selves, that just you know love reading studies and doing journal journal clubs, right? You know, we, we didn't find a whole lot talking specifically about what we're talking about. Um, you know, the, these ED, ICU overnight pharmacists, like what inter interventions are being done? How much money are they saving? Now, there are studies out there that have documented the benefit of having a pharmacist in ICU and how mortality is reduced and there's less adverse drug events and there's uh, cost savings associated with that presence. I think a study that was just released in 2021 from the FarmCrit uh, group, basically there was, I think, 215 or so ICU pharmacists across 85 centers came together and basically tracked all these interventions that they were doing. Now, these weren't necessarily only overnight clinicians, of course, um, although I, I bet some of them were, were doing things during these hours. You know, they had a total of like 50 something thousand interventions. Uh, and an annualized cost avoidance uh, of having an ICU pharmacist was like $1.7 million. So again, like basically using methods to tie a, a dollar value to the types of interventions that they do and um, typical of avoidance of cost from, you know, 
them not doing the intervention is kind of like how they drew that. So there, there's um, other studies out there that kind of, um, you know, reiterate that. And specifically, you know, most of these pharmacists were in the, the medical ICU, you know, and I think we're talking about uh, like all the different, you know, flipping to neuro ICU and cardiovascular ICU. I think it's important to know like where most of the interventions will happen. And I think a lot of them are probably in the ED and the NICU, which kind of sort of echoed what we had noticed during uh, our piloting period at my PGY2 site. A lot of uh, ICU needs were, were from that medical ICU. So it's just good to know those trends because when you're developing this pilot yourself, you can kind of know where to target first and really where to make yourself known and available, you know, making sure you're leaving your, your number up on a board somewhere and making sure everyone knows you're there. Um, so I think that's, there, there's nothing specifically about overnights, um, you know, hours out there right now, you know, hopefully what we're talking about serves as an impetus to start looking at some of those mm -hmm. things. Um, I will say though, and I know Jimmy, you did one of these programs, the, uh, the on-call uh, residency longitudinal component at Grady, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. so there, there are studies documenting the, um, I guess, effectiveness and enroll of those programs, which, you know, I know there's, and the number of programs that have them now are expanding, you know, I think the seminal paper that gets cited is probably the one from the University of Kentucky, where they talked about their uh, on-call program and, you know, breaking down like what things the residents are actually doing. Um, and, that, and now there's, there's more programs adopting those uh, since that had been published. So a lot of this stuff we can sort of extrapolate from, from those on-call program uh, studies and narratives. And then now we can start focusing more on, okay, how, how do we make this like more applicable to general clinical pharmacists and not just, you know, forcing a poor resident to like, you know, do these like overnights, like once in a while, like, and it's a totally different beast, right? Cause like when you're going into like this, you know, you're doing like seven days in a row. It's not just like a longitudinal here and there. So those on-call programs are great at like demonstrating like what, like, like how, how it's helpful to have someone there. And then now we kind of need to start talking more about, okay, like the actual feasibility of transitioning into a solely clinical pharmacist where all you're doing is just being a night owl. Um, so I think that's kind of where we kind of stand with the, the literature at this point. Um, and of course, you know, we just have to also look at the, uh, component of residency staffing requirements when we're thinking about doing some of these pilots as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of just have to keep that in mind that when we are piloting these things, keep, keep in mind those challenges of maintaining your resident responsibilities. You know, if you residents out there want to do this, I remember it was challenging balancing uh, flipping from a night shift and then having to present to PNT the next day. <laughs> um, and I, I'll never forget. I, I, when I did this, I, finished an overnight shift. I think I got a little bit of sleep or maybe I didn't sleep. And it was like, like 12 PM noon, you know, it was my presentation and I gave the, the talk and it was on, you know, my, my uh, MUE on digoxin levels. And it was like, I thought it was really exciting, you know, and I thought that I was delivering it in a, in a solid way. And then I remember <laughs> my uh, PGY2 co-resident at the time told me that uh, one of the, one of the physicians um, said that it sounded like I needed an SSRI because I was just not and not enthusiastic enough. And I was just like, Ooh, okay. So I'm like, all right. So then you have to kind of recalibrate and, you know, uh, make sure you're not overdoing it and balancing your responsibilities. So I think, um, you know, just keeping those things in mind as, as we move forward, trying to document this role in the literature and 
starting these programs, you know, I, I think it's just really important to keep all those logistical uh, challenges in mind. And it's going to vary from place to place. So some things that, you know, we may experience somewhere, um, you may not have to deal with somewhere else. So I think that's probably where we stand right now with, with the documentation of the stuff in the literature. And Diane, was there anything else that we had come across that I'm forgetting? Um, I think really the only additional thing that I would add on to that is, you know, kind of like you mentioned, a lot of these overnight on-call programs are serving as kind of a primer for what an overnight ICU or ED clinician can specifically do. But I think it's important to keep in yeah. mind that not every residency program at every institution is going to have the bandwidth to support an overnight um, mm -hmm. kind of on-call program. Obviously, there are some hospitals where the bulk of their overnight kind of coverage comes from these on-call programs because maybe they have 10, 15, 20 PGY-1 slash PGY-2 residents that are able to do these shifts, able to cover for each other. Um, there's always someone that's available versus other programs that maybe only have three residents or two residents. Obviously, they can't support kind of full-time coverage from that. And then also keeping in mind, residents are going to go to things like mid-year. They're going to have other like professional conferences that they go to. They're going to be on PTO. There's onboarding periods. And so um, I think that you know, the on-call programs, obviously, from a resident perspective, are a great opportunity to get exposure to the specific area, grow clinical skills, critical thinking skills, all of that. But I think that from an institution kind of perspective, it's important to kind of keep in mind that it's probably better to have um, expansion in these areas to have full-time clinical trained staff within these roles. Absolutely. And I think we really hit a, a ton of this. And I think if anyone's looking at this, I believe that this is going to be your, your primer episode before you even go down any rabbit holes. I think we really did a good job of hitting all of these things. And a lot of this is going to be on the show notes as, as well. But I want to take a step back. And I'm going to ask myself, since you guys are in these positions, where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Nick, what do you think of you? Well, it's always hard to say. And I think where I am now compared to where I was in the middle to end of pharmacy school, I never would have predicted where I am now. And I thought after that, I left New England, which, you know, was cold and there was snow. Um, you know, after I was experiencing Houston and Tucson, I'm like, oh, I love this warm weather, never going back to the cold, you know, but here I am in, in Minnesota. So, um, you know, you kind of just never really know how things are going to work out. But I think that in the next five years, I'll still likely be working as a clinical pharmacist and just working in the, in the trenches, you know, so to speak, and really um, just starting to get more involved with uh, larger scale research and helping to design some studies, um, continue advocating for a profession uh, as in any way I can, like, like we kind of are trying to do now uh, and really looking at the big picture of pharmacy as a whole and just trying to find different ways that we can uh, insert ourselves into these niche roles and, and bringing them to light. So, and I think longer term, uh, potentially I may look into getting into more of a management or business type of mindset and thinking about that side of pharmacy uh, to continue implementing these new services and products. But, um, you know, like Forrest Gump said, right? The box of chocolate that I don't know what I'm going to get. So I'm just going to enjoy whatever the process brings me. So. Dan, what about you? 
I think for me, um, and it definitely echoed a lot of sentiments of, you know, when I finished pharmacy school and started residency, I honestly never thought I would be in an overnight ICU um, kind of role, not even, not even as a like first job out of residency. So it's also kind of like, I don't really know what exactly is going to happen um, in the next five to 10 years. But I think for me overall kind of goals moving forward, I definitely want to continue as Nick said, working in the trenches, having a really solid kind of clinical role within an ICD setting. And I think for me, kind of the area and passion that I want to continue pursuing is really mentorship and being able to precept kind of the next generation of pharmacy. I think a lot of that for me kind of sparked from me realizing that the pharmacist I am today, it has a huge amount to do with the pharmacists that trained me and the mentors that I had starting from before pharmacy school, through pharmacy school and residency um, from a preceptor standpoint, a mentor standpoint, residency program director standpoint. And so that's something that I want to continue to give back. And so ideally in the next couple of years, um, kind of more down the line, looking into doing things like residency program director, program coordinator, starting up um, kind of a longitudinal API program and things like that to be able to really kind of serve in that role. Perfect. So you guys really hit everything. It's just, you guys did a phenomenal job. And I just want to leave you guys with any, any final thoughts you guys have for the audience. Again, it's going to be a ton of people from all over the world listening to this. So I'd like to say like any final, you know, shout outs or anything that you, you want to leave the audience with today. Well, I would say if you're graduating residency or, you know, getting to that point, um, or even if you're just starting out or you're already kind of more seasoned, just, you know, don't be afraid to do things that make you uncomfortable. It's okay to step outside your comfort zone. And I think what we talked about today really brings that point home. Uh, you know, this type of job, you're constantly challenging yourself and you're doing things that might be um, scary or you might be uncomfortable doing. But honestly, that's where the growth happens. And I would just say, no matter what path your listeners are going to take, just Try to be the best you can at it and don't be afraid to try new things and get outside your comfort zone. Watch you, Diane. I would 100% echo that. Um, the kind of feedback that I give to my own mentees is get comfortable being uncomfortable because just like Nick said, it's exactly where the growth is going to happen. If you put yourself only in comfortable situations, you're never going to learn new things. You're never going to challenge yourself. And so really putting yourself in those kind of experiences and opportunities where you're able to do those different things is really where you continue to grow those skills. Um, I think the other thing to kind of um, keep in mind really is that, you know, every job, no matter what it is, it is what you make of it. And so just because a specific job has XYZ responsibilities, um, or maybe is at XYZ hours, doesn't mean that you can't expand certain services, that you can't be involved in certain things, that you can't take students or take residents or serve on committees. And so I think a lot of that is um, something that I personally kind of am still growing into as a new practitioner is kind of figuring out where and what areas am I able to kind of leave my own impact outside of just my specific kind of on paper job responsibility. So it's something that I would um, encourage residents and kind of new practitioners that are going into these roles to kind of keep in mind and don't feel limited just because your job only, your job hours are only from, you know, 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. That's perfect. We're going to head up to the closeout. 
All right, last few closing things for you guys. I want to make sure that you guys are aware of the Empower RX conference. That's going to be on March 11th and 12th. It's going to be our virtual and slightly hybrid conference, depending on what COVID does, where we can get together and talk about all things emergency medicine. This is going to be the first time that we can have an international emergency medicine conference. Again, I'm going to say this again, the first time we have an, uh, an international pharmacy emergency medicine conference it's going to be really cool. I have speakers from all over the world. I have some of the biggest names in ED pharmacy. So it's going to be pretty cool. And this whole conference is going to be based off of concepts, going to be for us and by us. So the speakers, the topics, all of this was chosen by you guys. So really want you guys to go check that out. And I'm definitely not trying to rape the bank here. Um, I want you guys to just know that, again, we're providing 75 bucks for practitioners, 30 bucks for residents, and it's free for students. So any student listening to this right now, definitely you know, reach out and we can make sure we get you guys taken care of. You can go to EmpowerRx slash conference.com. It's going to be on all of our websites in the show notes. And lastly, if you like what we do here, definitely check out our premium website at, at PACU. Again, the Pharmacy and Acute Care University. That's where we take a lot more conversations like this, get more in depth and provide you guys with a few more resources that can help you, whether you're a resident, a student or a practitioner. So again, I thank all of you guys for listening to another episode of Farm So Hard. And you guys know how I close out every episode. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. 